Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes 1. Last week was our book sermon. There we go. Last week was our book sermon in Ecclesiastes. An overview of the entire um, book. I enjoy the book sermon. If you were not able to be here for that, uh, it helps you understand the forest. So that as we're talking about the trees, the individual little concepts found without, we don't lose perspective. There are still outlines on the back table. There will be until we're finished with our series in Ecclesiastes. If you did not get one and you would like one, uh, I give an outline for every book of the Bible that I've preached through. And Lord willing, one day I will have 66 outlines because I will have preached through all 66 books. And then we'll just do it all over again. So I'm excited about that one day. Um, if you go to the archive page on our website, you'll find that we've already made a good, uh, we've, we've chiseled out a good chunk of scripture. And that just delights my soul every time I see it. Ecclesiastes 1. The book of Ecclesiastes is an argument built along the course of its chapters leading to one final grand conclusion. It's an experiment which records individual tests and trials of a hypothesis leading to a final decision. Due to the unique nature of this book's argument, it will play out more like, in some ways, more like a New Testament epistle than an Old Testament, say, narrative. It's, it's poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. It's, it's in our, our poetic books. It's written um, in, in a, a unique fashion, similar to the Proverbs and, and Song of Solomon, the other books written by Solomon. Uh, but it definitely forms one cohesive whole, and it's challenging, preaching a book that really is so unified in small segments. And so that book sermon will be very helpful. We'll also be coming back regularly to certain points. You're going to hear it a lot. You're going to hear points a lot, but repetition is the key to knowledge, right? So we're going to keep repeating, and by the end of the book, you'll have some things in your head. I guarantee it. I mean, unless you just weren't listening at all, but I think you'll, you'll have some things in your head. So we're talking about life in Ecclesiastes. Everyone sees life a little bit differently, don't they? Everyone places priorities on different things. We have our ideas. We have our thoughts on what makes a good life and what makes life better. Some of these thoughts, these ideas, these principles are experiential. We've seen both sides of life and we understand full well which one is superior to another. Some of them are theoretical. We see someone else's life and we consider various aspects of their life to be superior to our own, more desirable than our, desirable than our own. We look at them and say, that's where I'd like to be someday. Now, as humans, one of the temptations that we have in regard to our perception of life is to infer cause and effect. We see someone who looks happy and we look for the cause of that happiness, right? We say they're happy. What has made them so happy? It must be because of, and then we infer 
a cause. It must be because of their wealth. They're financially secure. It must be because of their marriage. They've got a good marriage. It must be because they've had a good childhood. It must be because of their religious beliefs. And so we see happiness or we see something in someone that we like or we think is positive. And when we recognize the effect, we infer the cause. Anyone on social media or anyone that watches the news today uh, can relate to this idea. You see celebrities at their big bashes where they get together and they give each other trophies, right? And as they're at these bashes where they give each other trophies, everyone's happy, everybody's smiling, everyone's... And you say, wow, they're all just so happy. And you infer from that that it must be their lifestyle that makes them happy. Only to read the next week of the drug overdose. Only to read the next week of the divorce. Wait a minute. They have all this stuff. They've got fame, they've got wealth, they've got notoriety... Why are they unhappy? Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to test these theories of happiness. And he's in a unique position to do so because he was a king of wisdom and of wealth, able to pursue any and every end to find that happiness. You know, there's no point in Solomon's search, there was no point in his search where he hit a wall of resources or a wall of opportunity, or a wall of privilege that he couldn't get over, where he could say at the end of the day, if only I could have gotten that, I would have been happy. If only I could have gotten over that wall of opportunity. If only I could have gotten over that wall of money. If only I could have gotten over that wall of privilege. Then, then I would have found happiness. He didn't have any of those. He had everything and anything that money could buy. Every opportunity, every privilege, every honor, every fame. There's nothing that he didn't experience so that he could say, maybe the key to happiness is on the other side of that wall. He tested them all out for us, and Ecclesiastes is his conclusion. So the theory, the question, the hypothesis, the the thing that Solomon will be testing throughout the book, what brings true happiness? The word that we'll use throughout the book, what brings lasting satisfaction? And let me ask you to think hypothetically and rhetorically for just a moment on that. Answer that question in your mind. What brings lasting satisfaction? Some of you might be thinking of some of the things we've mentioned already. Money, fame, good health, rest. So let's fill in the blank. Lasting satisfaction, true happiness, is rooted in Ecclesiastes is going to be a several-month experiment for us where we test each possible hypothesis. But in actuality, Solomon, Solomon begins with the end of his testing. He's writing the book presumably after the fact. Having concluded his experiment, he's presenting to us his results. We are just reading the white paper. And as we talk through the book... We're going to be tempted to think of Solomon's writing as somewhat fatalistic and pessimistic. But indeed it is not. Solomon writes from a human perspective. What he will call throughout the book the perspective of one under the sun. So he's writing from a human perspective and the fatalism and pessimism comes as he is talking about himself in that time of testing. But just because he's talking about life from the perspective of a man under the sun does not mean you have to live 
that way. And that's going to be Solomon's conclusion and what we're going to keep coming back to over and over again. As Solomon seeks to express the futility of his efforts to find lasting satisfaction through purely humanistic means, we're going to feel that pessimism, feel that fatalism, feel that nihilism. But don't mistake this for fatalism because it's not. Many throughout the centuries have interpreted this book as being extremely nihilistic. Nihilistic meaning don't, don't, don't care about anything, nothing matters. And understandably so. But not if we actually see what Solomon is doing here. He lived that life of emptiness so that he could warn you not to. That's the point. And we're going to keep bringing ourselves back to that so we don't get too depressed on any given week. But it's going to be a bit of a lodge through the mud here as we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the most desperate, the most hopeless of humans in order to understand where that hopelessness comes from and how that hopelessness can be defeated. So we begin in Ecclesiastes 1. We're going to be going through the whole first chapter today. The Bible says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The book opens with a brief introduction which gives us insight into its authorship. I'm not going to extensively talk about why we believe the writer of this book is Solomon. Uh, we find here in verse 1 that he introduces himself as the preacher. He doesn't introduce himself as the king. He says he was a king, but he introduces himself as the preacher. And this is important. We will also find in verse 12 that he states he himself was king over Jerusalem again. So we'll know that he was king over Jerusalem. Uh, he is the son of David. There are people that argue that it was not Solomon. However, uh, most conservative scholars um, don't debate over this, that Solomon wrote the book along with Song of Songs and much of the Proverbs. And there's a lot of good reasons. We don't really need to get into them as to why he was most likely the author of this book. Um, Christian scholars, like scholars in every age, do like to outsmart themselves in these ways oftentimes, but we're not going to play that game. We're just going to stick to what uh, seems most reasonable and then leave the rest to God because it really doesn't matter all that much at the end of the day anyway. But he does call himself, and I will be referencing him as Solomon throughout the book, he does call himself the preacher. And it indicates more about his purpose than his identity. The Hebrew word... For preacher here, koaleth, speaks of one who is a public speaker, a philosopher of sorts. The word is found only in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it comes up seven times throughout the book. In introducing himself as the preacher instead of as the king, or instead of as the son of David, those are identity markers, but he calls himself the preacher. It seems that he desires that we as readers would not see him as much as a king as simply a man. That we would not emphasize the fact that he was a king as much as we would emphasize his humanity. He seeks not to represent Israel, but to represent mankind. You and I. To represent the way we think. To represent the way we act. To represent our temptations. To represent our despair. Our hopes. Our dreams. Our confusion. Our desires. And so he is the preacher He's the speaker. He's the philosopher. He's the one who is representing humanity, if we might say it that way. 
God blessed Solomon with great insight, wisdom. We talked about that in our book sermon last week. Allowing him to pursue thoughts and ideas. Allowing him to, him to pursue ideals. Allowing him to answer our questions on life by his experience so that we don't have to do it ourselves. In verses 2 and 3 we read this. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Notice under the sun. We talk about under the sun. And then notice that word, vanity. This word is introduced to us here and it's going to be found a great deal throughout the book. When we think of the word vanity, we most often associate it in our minds with being vain. With a person who is completely caught up in themselves and their appearance. A vain person. To this end, the word is often linked to arrogance. And this is one of the meanings of the word, to be sure. As a matter of fact, if you were to open a modern dictionary and you were to read that modern dictionary and go to the word vanity, uh, this idea of arrogance or of caring a great deal about your appearance would be definition number one. But if you go back and look at an older dictionary, and the one that we use because it's tied into the King James Bible most closely was Webster's first dictionary, the Webster's 1828. And if you go back to the Webster's 1828 dictionary, which will give you the most accurate renderings of words as they were actually meant in the King James Bible, we find that the first meaning in the, of, of vanity is actually emptiness. Lacking substance enough to satisfy a desire. Emptiness. Lacking substance enough to satisfy a desire. And as we walk through the book, this is the idea that you should connect with the word vanity. Don't think of him saying that the world is arrogant. Don't think of him saying that the world uh, uh, cares too much about its appearance. When he's saying that something is vanity, he's saying that it is lacking what is sufficient to bring lasting satisfaction. That's what the word means. And as we walk through the book, this idea is going to be connected all throughout. Lacking in substance that is able to satisfy. It doesn't mean, now, now take note of this. This does not mean that what everything Solomon calls vanity, he's not calling it worthless. He's not calling it meaningless. He's not saying it cannot bring happiness. He's not saying those things. He's simply saying that it is insufficient to bring lasting satisfaction. The word in the Hebrew literally carries the idea of vapor or breath. You walk outside on a cold day, you breathe, and you see your breath. But it doesn't last, right? It doesn't stay there. You don't watch it float up into the sky. You see it, and it's gone. You're boiling water on a stove, and as it boils, you see the steam. But you don't see the steam indefinitely. It gets up, it goes a little bit, a few inches above the pot, and then the steam is gone. You don't see it anymore. That's the idea behind this concept of vanity, like a vapor. As a matter of fact, that, that's where James got that concept, and Hebrews gets that concept. What is life? It is but a vapor that appeareth for a short time, and then vanisheth away. That's the idea. That's the idea here. That's, that's the vanity being spoken of here. The te- as he tests theory after theory about what brings true happiness, lasting satisfaction, he will reveal that everything on this material plane apart from a spiritual contribution, will end in vanity. It will not bring lasting satisfaction. It will last, lack the substance necessary for lasting satisfaction. And this is what Solomon is saying here. He kind of just jumps right in. Vanity of vanities, 
saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There is nothing, as he's speaking on a material plane, nothing under the sun. There's nothing under the sun that can produce for you in itself lasting satisfaction. And so he asks, What profit has a man in all of the labor which he taketh under the sun? What profit is there in a man's efforts in any respect? And what he means by this is given in verses 4 through 7 as we continue. He says, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. So Solomon gives what we might be considered his evidences of futility. And he cites the cyclical nature of this earth. A generation comes and then another generation comes and then the other one is gone. But the earth remains forever. Now it's important to note in this statement Solomon's generalities once again. Solomon is writing literature, particularly Hebrew prose and poetry. He's not writing theological or narrative here, okay? He's not attempting to say that the world will remain forever. We know there's coming a day when God will melt the earth with a fervent heat where he will make a new heaven and a new earth. Solomon is not trying to contradict that in in theology. He's not making a theological statement. We also know that he's not making a scientific statement here about how the sun, you know, he talks about the sun rising and setting and, of course, it's the earth rotating and such and and none of that is supposed to be here. That's not what Solomon is, is, is getting at. And we know that, but we might as well state that anyway. The point is that the generations are coming and going, but the earth is remaining the same. You and I are here now, but one day we'll be gone. And should the Lord tarry, in a thousand years, there's still going to be people coming and going. We're going to be long gone. But if the Lord tarries, people are still going to be born. People are still going to be dying. Generations are going to come. Generations are going to go. Ideas will come. Ideas will go. The ideas that we're seeing in society today, they've been around before. A bunch of times. Everything is kind of a cycle. Solomon will talk about nothing new under the sun. We'll get there. Solomon then speaks of the sun and the wind. The sun rises, the sun sets, regardless of your actions or my actions. The wind blows where it will blow, regardless of your actions or my actions. And Solomon, there we go, his final illustration is the rivers. They flow down into the sea continually. But you have, have you ever noticed that the sea never fills up? Rivers are constantly flowing into the seas, but they never fill up. Well, we know why. But there's a cyclical nature to the earth, isn't there? And that's what Solomon is showing here. The point that Solomon wants us to understand, in the grand scheme of things, what we do matters very little. Now, there is some generational impact for our efforts, especially as it relates to human technology. Now, remember, we're talking about under the sun. I'm not talking about what you do for Christ. Solomon's not talking about what you do for Christ. What you do on this earth matters very little. There is some generational impact when we talk about technology. The inventor of the automobile, of the personal computer, of the Internet, have revolutionized the way we live, but really hasn't changed the big things, has it? You and I will still die. Others will still come and fill our place. The sun still rises and sets. Winds still blow. 
Storms still aren't controllable. Rains come and go. For all that there has been an impact on the manner of our life, the big stuff has remained the same. Whether we're here or not, whether we invent or not, whether we build or destroy, the earth and its cycles remain. We have technology now that can make farming significantly easier than it used to be, but you know we're still farming, aren't we? To get our food. The big things haven't changed. And if you think about that from the broadest level, it kind of leaves you feeling empty, doesn't it? Nothing we do has any real impact on the world at large. The earth will continue to revolve. The sun will rise and set. The seasons will come and go. And we're kind of along for the ride. Now again, the point is not that these have no value. It's not that there's no worth, that there's no meaning, that there's no happiness to be found in the things under the sun. It's not that we have no value. His point is simply that it has no lasting satisfaction. He continues in verses 8 through 11. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been Excuse me. It has been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. There's always something new to see, always something new to hear. Life is one continuous process of stimulus and response, a continuous process of information processing. Our brains never fill up. We as humans never arrive. And yet for all that we learn and and for all that we process, it's been learned before. It's been processed before. Life is lived. It goes from day to day. Things come and things go. A man reaches an end only to feel the need to move on to something else. I get my bachelor's degree. I can move on to my master's degree. I get my master's degree. I can move on to a doctorate. I get my doctorate. I can get published. I get published. I can go on speaking tours. At what point have I arrived? At what point is there nothing left for me to do? So I get to the very pinnacle of my career while there's still thousands of other careers I could pursue. And that others have already pursued. I spend my years in education learning and learning and learning. And what if I'm learning except for that which others have already learned and are ready to teach me? So that I can pass on what they learned to someone else. We learn. We achieve. We work. We strive. We earn. We grow. Then we die. So Solomon says there's no new thing under the sun. Technology comes and goes. But it doesn't really change the basics. Sure, now I can live in Minnesota and get on an airplane to visit my family in Colorado and be there in a couple of hours. But I'm still striving to spend time with my family, just as families have done for millennia. Sure, I can live farther away and I can talk to them over the computer, but 1,000 years ago it would have been the same thing, only I wouldn't have moved away. So I would have been doing it in person. The means have changed, but the broader concept isn't. I love my family, I want to spend time with them. It isn't that technology doesn't change things, It isn't that men don't invent. It's the broader philosophical idea that when push comes to shove, the earth and human nature and human ambition and human desire doesn't really change. We're still struggling with the same problems that Adam and Eve struggled with. We still have to eat. We still have to sleep. We still have sin. We're still struggling with sin. 
We still want what's best for our family. We still love our children. We still love our spouse. We're still doing the same human things this many years later. So Solomon, throughout the book, will be using many Near Eastern sayings. He'll be taking Near Eastern sayings that we can find in all sorts of other philosophers of of the day, and he's applying them, and he's using them as a launch-off point to show just how important God is. But if I may use a modern saying to try to relate this whole concept to us, it's all the same book, it's just a new chapter. That's what Solomon's saying. It's all the same book, it's just a new chapter. We're doing the same things, we're just changing how we do them. Our technology helps us get water faster and easier, but we still need water. Our technology helps us stay connected, but the former generations wanted that connection too. Our technology helps us stay healthy, but former generations strove for health as well. Times come, times go. Nowadays, I can take a picture and preserve a memory. It can last beyond me in a way that perhaps other generations could not. Nowadays, we can write books, and our, so our ideas can last beyond ourselves in a way that perhaps it could not. But inevitably, all of that will come to naught, either through forgetfulness or through intentional ignorance. So I have a picture of my great-grandparents, and it meant a great deal to my grandparents. It meant a lot to my parents. It means a lot to me. It might mean something to my children. But by the time my grandchildren have it, it's just a picture. The stories behind them, all of that, that's going to fade away. Even the things that really matter, the philosophers, with the exception of this book right here, Which person who has impacted our society has not gone through a process of having their words, their ideas changed? Confused. People on both sides of the issue. He's a good man, he's a horrible man. He's a good writer, he's a terrible writer. That's that cycle. This is just how life works. Under the sun. Now, in verse 12, Solomon's philosophy gets more personal as he begins to relay his own experience through verse 14. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. The sword travail, this sword travail, excuse me, hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon was king. We know from last week's study he was a man of tremendous wisdom and tremendous wealth. He tells us that he devoted his heart to seeking out by wisdom the things that are done under the sun. He wanted to find out everything that man does in himself, everything that is done under the sun, seeking it out through wisdom to understand it, to understand its character, to understand its essence. With his resources and through his divinely bestowed wisdom, Solomon was uniquely positioned to try out every avenue of life and assess its capacity to bring lasting satisfaction. There was no element of life which he was not able to explore, whether physically, emotionally, or intellectually. And take note of this claim in light of what he has already said. And what is now is what shall be. There's nothing new under the sun. So while Solomon did have the opportunity, he didn't have the opportunity to, say, watch television. He didn't have the opportunity to surf the internet. He didn't have the opportunity to play video games. 
the claim of the inspired scriptures is that the, that fact really doesn't matter. That the human experience has not changed, even though the way that we are attempting to experience it has. Solomon had not, he was not able to sit in front of a television and binge watch a show. But he was able to explore the very heights of human amusement nonetheless. It was different amusement, but he was able to explore the very pinnacle. Now, I don't know that binge watching is the pinnacle of human amusement, but you get the idea. He didn't have the technology. No, there weren't roller coasters. No, there wasn't internet. No, there wasn't television. No, there weren't video games. But he was able to explore every human experience, the same experiences that all of those comprise. Relaxation, amusement, enjoyment, whatever. Comedy. He was able to yet experience them all so that he can rightly speak to you as you relate to the amusements of our day. And Solomon's conclusion, as he tried everything and did everything, under the sun, everything is vanity and vexation of spirit. He says, this is sore travail that God has given to us. By that, Solomon means it takes high level of commitment and focus to pursue every ambition. And in the end, it only came up lacking satisfaction. You can spend your whole life pursuing that dream. I'm going to make a million bucks. And you spend your entire life saving and working and earning to make your million bucks. But at the end of it, Solomon says it's sore travail unto vanity and vexation of spirit. So I'm going to pursue that end. I'm going to get that education. I'm going to get that degree. I'm going to pursue the pinnacle of my profession and my career. And at the end, it was sore travail leading to vanity and vexation of spirit. Consider carefully Solomon's message here. Ambition, a drive for wealth and prosperity and knowledge and enjoyment, these are not bad things. These are not bad things. They are gifts from God. But in and of themselves, under the sun, apart from God, if you detach these things from God, from who God is, from what He expects, and from the reality of Him giving them to you. If you put them out of balance, if you make them more important than they really are, they're vanity. They will lack the satisfaction that you crave in them. And Solomon says this time, not just vanity, but then he uses the second idea. Vanity and vexation of spirit. The idea here being that striving for something that is unattainable. Vexation of spirit. A striving for that which is unattainable. Not that pleasure and enjoyment cannot be found in the things of this life. You can walk away from that that amusement, that enjoyment, that time with your family. Uh, you can walk away having had fun, having enjoyed it. But rather that the pleasures and enjoyments of this life under the sun, apart from God, cannot bring you and I to that place of lasting satisfaction. Not in marriage, not in family, not in amusements, not in material wealth, not in fellowship with others. That is not enough in and of itself to bring you satisfaction. In verse 15, Solomon brings the thoughts together, both from verses 4 through 11 and then verses 12 to 14. He says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. 
Summary, that first phrase, summary from verses 4 through 11. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. The world turns, the sun rises, the sun sets, the wind comes, the world goes. That which was is that which is, that which is is that which will be. It is what it is, the crooked cannot be made straight. You can't look at a crooked line and say, yeah, that's a straight line. And start defining everything that looks like that as a straight line because it's not a straight line, it's a crooked line. You can't just say, because I want it to be straight, it's straight. It doesn't work that way. If it's crooked, it's crooked. And no amount of your willpower is going to make a crooked line straight. The same thing. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. This is an accounting idea. That which is lacking essential value cannot be a proper substitute for the value itself. The phrase would be reflected in this way. If I go into a store and I'm buying things and it rings up at $15 and I have $8 with me, there is no amount of math that can make that $8 be sufficient to cover a $15 charge. I can't will that $8 to be sufficient to cover the charge. There's nothing that I can do to make that $8 stretch $15. It doesn't work that way. You simply don't have enough money. And this is the idea. That carries over from verses 12 to 14. Those things which the world offers lack the necessary substance to satisfy in themselves. And if they, by their very nature, lack the necessary substance, then it can never fill the need. The things in this world simply cannot provide for a man that which is necessary for true fulfillment. If the world and everything in the world and every possible enjoyment and satisfaction in the world amounts to only eight bucks, there's, and you need 15 bucks to be satisfied... There's no way you can be satisfied just through the things of this world. That's the idea. The crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. Verses 16 and 17. I communed with my own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been gotten before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. So Solomon considered all of these things as he brings the, the idea back to himself. He considered his own situation. We spoke already. He was a man of incredible means. He had all the money he could possibly want. He had fame. He had honor. He had power. And he had an, a 40-year a, a reign of, of peace. He did not only have physical and material superiority, but he had mental and emotional superiority. He'd been given more wisdom than any man who had ever been in Jerusalem, he says. He had great knowledge of the world around him. Nothing was held from him. And he gave his heart to everything that could possibly satisfy. Not only to the wise things, to the things that would profit, to the building projects and to music and to all of those profitable things and, and true learning. But he gave his heart and his mind to, wis- to, to madness and folly as well. If the world says that that sin is what makes a man happy, then I'm going to pursue it to see if it's true. And he pursued it. He pursued not just wisdom, but folly in order to find out if anything under the sun could make a man happy whether the things that are right before God or whether the things that are wrong before God. Can any of it make me happy? Does any of it have lasting satisfaction? If the world tells me that's what will satisfy me, I'm going to try it and see for myself. And Solomon found both wisdom, madness, and folly, all three, as vexation of spirit. 
lacking that which was necessary. And so he concludes in verse 18, as we conclude this chapter, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now this isn't saying don't learn. Kids are like, yeah, see mom and dad? I can shut the books now, right? It's not it. But the more a man learns of life under the sun, the greater a man's knowledge of the ways the world works, the more he has seen, the more he has experienced, the deeper his understanding of human nature, of how things work, the more grief and sorrow he has over how things really are. The greater that a man comes to realize that the things of the world are just aren't enough. That's what he finds the more he digs. The man comes to realize just how sinful we all really are. Just how little the things in this earth really mean in the broad scheme of things. And that's the idea. And his meaning here really encompasses the whole of his chapter's thoughts. How many men today are driven in their life by chasing the rainbow? By seeking the elusive happiness and contentment that comes from some goal which they have never truly obtained? By seeing the grass as always greener on the other side and convincing themselves that the source of their dissatisfaction in life is whatever it is that they don't have that someone else does. And there are so very few people on the earth that are able to actually test that theory. There are so few people on the earth that are able to actually pursue anything and everything that they want so that they could actually say, like Solomon does here, I've tried it all. But what Solomon tells us is that he had tried it all. He'd seen it all. He'd learned everything he could. And as he stood on that mountaintop, looking over every possible advantage, every possible dream, the height of human ambition, in any context, all that he saw was a bunch of empty promises. This life alone offers no top of the mountain. This life alone offers no lasting satisfaction. The things that are done under the sun, exclusively under the sun. Now remember, we're separating this from done in Christ. We're separating this from, from a life in God. That's where we're going with this. But that's, Solomon is separating that. He's talking about this is what a man is like without God. This is what it is like when you look at the world without him. All of the entertainment, all of the joys, all of the pleasures, everything the world says is great. Do it. Go your way. Do your thing. Solomon's been to that mountaintop. And there's nothing up there. There's nothing up there. And not only is there frustration, the more a man climbs that ladder and realizes that. But then one adds to it the frustration that if you try to tell others this fact, they simply won't believe you. The old adage says, ignorance is bliss. The less you know, the less you have to worry about, right? And in many senses, it's true. And then when you don't have the ignorance anymore, then it's up to you to try to help others understand this. And that's not an easy thing. 
If you try to help others out of the pit of their own miserable, unsatisfied existence because they're living for only this life, living under the sun, they only persist in their confidence that if they only had the next step, they'd be happy. That next promotion, that new boat, that new car, that next gaming system, that perfect spouse, that number of children, that much money in the bank. If they could only get there, they'd be happy. If they only had this much education, if they only had that kind of notoriety, if they only got published... And many people simply will not be convinced otherwise. And there's so little that a wise man can do about us, about that. And that leads to much, wisdom, uh, to much grief and to much sorrow. Saw a comic. Wish I would have put it up here. But I wasn't thinking about it till now. A comic, one of my favorite comics, is two old men sitting in a chair surrounded by books. And the one man says, Those who have learned from history are destined to sit around and watch everyone else repeat it. And isn't that the case? That the more you learn, the more you see, the bigger perspective you have, the more troubled you are at everybody else who just doesn't see it and who refuses to. We're going to apply this morning, and I've got five points, but really it's more like three points. The first three points are kind of one argument, and then I'm going to separate the next two. And the first of those first three points is this. God has designed man to thirst for a fully lived life. We must not forget this throughout our book. Life is not a bad thing. Life is given by God to be lived. God has placed within men the desire to live a full life, to enjoy the things that life has to offer. Now, I'm sorry to go through this, but maybe it'll be a more poignant illustration. Some of you are fasting today. Have you ever thought about how good food tastes? Now, I'm really not trying to say that because you're fasting today, but have you ever thought about that? I mean, couldn't God have just given to us a bunch of bland food that would meet our nutritional needs? But He didn't. He gave us a lot of really good food. And, and, and even good food that's good for you, right? There's a lot of it out there. Maybe not the stuff they're concocting today, but I mean, there's some good stuff out there. He could have given us stuff that had no flavor, just eat. Food is fuel, right? Food is fuel. But God didn't just give us fuel. He gave us pleasure in the eating. That's a blessing from the Lord. God did that on purpose because He wants you to enjoy Life. Have you ever sat upon a porch and just watched the sun rise in the morning? Have you ever felt the rush of cruising down a ski hill? Have you ever felt that joy in getting that deer or catching that big fish? The delight of seeing a new child born? A child, a grandchild? Life is meant to be loved. It's meant to be enjoyed. The rest of just spending time with friends and family. These things are built into you by God. And we love them because God has made us to love them. And we want to live life to its fullest. And we ought to. Never feel guilty about your desire for life. Never feel guilty about your desire for enjoyment and experiences and people. Never feel guilty about your desire to have a family or to own a home or 
to get that raise or to pursue the pinnacle of your career or your profession or your calling. God has designed you with ambition to love life, to seek to maximize it. But you know, any virtue can become a vice, right? Everything that God has created in us, built in virtue for our pleasure and His glory, can be twisted by sin to become something different altogether. Something it was never designed by God to be. That's our second point. First, God has designed man to thirst for a fully lived life. But second, man's sin nature has sought to find full satisfaction in life apart from God. All the way back to Adam and Eve, right? When they're in the garden and the serpent speaks to Eve and says, has God really told you that you may not eat of all the trees of the garden? And Eve says, no, serpent, that's not quite right. He's told me that we can eat of all but one. Satan's trying to say, you can't have them all. God said, you can have all but one. Satan's trying to twist the perspective of man. God is withholding something from me. And when Satan convinced Eve that the thing which God was withholding from her, that that one tree amidst all of the thousands that God had put in the garden, that that one tree was the thing that could really make her happy, the one thing that could really give her lasting satisfaction. For God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. God is afraid of you. God is trying to withhold something from you. God does not have your best interest in mind. The forbidden fruit. And if only you had it, if only you could get that, then you'd really be happy. Then you'd really have it. All the way back to Adam and Eve, we've been struggling with this. Nothing new under the sun. Since the day that Adam, through his rebellion, plunged the human race into sin... The depravity of our human hearts has identified the pleasures of this life apart from God, the things which are contrary to God and His Word, not as gifts from God, even the things that are right and good, not as gifts from God, as means of enjoyment along the journey of our personal relationship with Him, but rather our wicked hearts now long to identify in the pleasures of this life and to identify them as adequate substitutes for a personal relationship with God. Our human heart in its wickedness seeks to desperately find satisfaction in these things apart from God so that we can reject our Lord and Creator but still find contentment that we long for. And that brings us to our third point. Man now seeks complete satisfaction in that fully lived life. And this is natural. Not natural because we are sons of God. But because we're sons of Adam. God created us to love life as an extension of our fulfillment in Him. We are complete in Him and we love life because it's a gift from Him. That's how God has created us. All of the stuff under the sun is simply our way of enjoying God's gifts. That's how God created. That's that's what God meant. But instead, our sin nature has desired that we take the things that are under the sun and find satisfaction in them apart from him. And it leads to vanity and vexation in spirit. We see in this world all around us 
this reality. We see it every day. It's been particularly potent in the last couple of months, hasn't it? The marches, the debates, the politics. We could talk psychology. We could talk education. We could talk philosophy. We could talk really any secular topic. And we can see how mankind is trying to draw lasting satisfaction out of that which simply cannot satisfy. But where we really need to turn our hearts is not outwards, but inwards. We need to understand our own propensity toward this. We need to see how often our heart seeks to tell us that we would be happy if only we had. I think I'm going to use this illustration next week, but let me just mention it this week as well. We've all been like this as a kid, right? Did you ever have one of those times where you were asking mom and dad for something? And you said, if I could only have this, I'll never ask for anything again. Or you thought, if I could only get this, I'd never want anything again. How many times have you thought that in your life? How many times have you thought, if only I could have, then I'd never... God, if, if, if you'd give me this, I'll never ask for anything again. Parent, if I can have this, I'll never ask for anything again. Or, if I go buy that, then I'll never need to buy another one again, right? Until that little surge of excitement wears off. And then you're writing down the next Christmas list, right? All the next things you're going to ask for, even though you'd never ask for anything again. Why? Because that's the human heart. We need to see how often our heart is trying to, te- te- trying to take us from benchmark to benchmark as a way of living. Get something that you want. You've arrived. Now you need something new. Get it. Need something new. Get it. Need something new. Unsatisfied. Satisfied. Unsatisfied. Satisfied. Unsatisfied. Satisfied. It's not how God has designed you to live. From thing to next thing, never satisfied. Always longing for something else. Always thinking that we'll find that fulfillment in the next thing. It's a part of who we are, but not because we have been created that way by God, but because it has been marred by sin. And no matter how hard we try, this way of living, living under the sun, it will not satisfy. Solomon says it this way in verse 15. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. You you will never be able to find lasting satisfaction and fulfillment if you only use that which life has to offer. You can have all the money. You can have all the things. You can have the perfect family. You can have the perfect situation. You can have all the knowledge. You can have all the degrees. You can have all the insight. You can have perfect health. You can travel the world. You can do all of these things, but you won't find in them. You will find happiness, no doubt. No doubt you'll enjoy it but you won't find in it lasting satisfaction. You won't. So our next point. This attempt, the attempt to live a life fully lived outside of God is vanity and vexation of spirit. For all that you have, for all the good days you can live, for all of the comforts, for all of the luxuries, for all of the pleasures, is simply doesn't have enough currency to give you lasting satisfaction. Say, Pastor, I don't believe you. You may not. And you know, you really just shouldn't take my word for it. This is not a church where I say, I've said it, so now you need to believe it. That's not how we roll here. There's never anything from behind this pulpit or out of my mouth that you should just believe. We don't trust a man. We don't trust a church. We trust the Bible and the Bible alone. 
I haven't lived in wealth and prosperity, and I most likely never will. I don't even anticipate ever owning a new car. I don't anticipate owning, you know, nah, th- th- those things are beyond me at this point in, my, in the scope of my life and in this point of how I see my life going. So I can't say that there's emptiness in all of these things that I've never had and probably never will. But Solomon did live this way. And if you're willing and able to believe one of the wisest and wealthiest men who ever lived, you would do well. But if that isn't enough, remember that you are reading the inspired word of God. God put this Bible together and he put this in the Bible so that we would listen, so that we would learn, and in doing so, so that you, particularly young people, but all of us, would not make the mistakes yourself. And so it comes down to, are you going to believe what this Bible says? Do you believe it? Are you willing to stake your life on it, even though the world and the flesh and the devil are screaming at you something entirely different? Over the next several months, we'll dig into the details of these propensities of our heart to find fulfillment in that which cannot satisfy. Many of the things we have briefly mentioned, and we'll bring them up again and again and again. And if you have ears to hear, and you are willing to step out in faith and seek your lasting satisfaction, not in what this world can provide, but in that which is beyond the reach of this world and rooted in the world that is to come, you will find what your heart longs for. You will find what every heart longs for. And that's our final point. We're going to be doing this all throughout Man can find lasting satisfaction. Solomon's not presenting it this week, but I'm going to keep bringing you back to it. Man can find lasting satisfaction. It is out there, and it will be the conclusion of the series in Ecclesiastes 12. You can have complete fulfillment. You can have total satisfaction. You just won't find it in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the uh, flesh, or the pride of life. You won't find it in those things that your heart is telling you that you must have to be happy. You will only find it in Christ. And so every week throughout this series, I'm going to finish our sermon with a verse. And a verse which helps us orient our minds to this reality that lasting satisfaction is found in something beyond what is under the sun. And today we're going to conclude with the words of Jesus as he's being tempted in the wilderness by the devil in Matthew 4.4. And Jesus answered the devil and he said this, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus told Satan, it takes more than just this world for a man to truly live. The man who wants to truly live, sure, he sustains his body. But the man who really wants to live, lives by the words that proceed out of the mouth of God. And this is the point of this book. The point of this book is to bring you to a place where you believe that with all of your heart. So much so that you stake your life on it. You stake your ambitions on it. You stake your direction on it. You build everything that you are, that you will be, on it. That this world, this life, cannot satisfy. And when you're there, certain things will just start to fall away. And that which is truly Necessary, that which truly matters will bubble up to the surface. And when we're there, then we will truly be living 
in a way that can produce lasting satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, pray for God's people. Pray for myself. This is not easy stuff. Help us to believe it. You are God. We are your creation. You know all. We know only that with which you have privileged us to know. We don't always understand. It doesn't always make sense. It doesn't always seem to be the most logical, and it certainly isn't the easiest. But Father, may we trust you. I pray for our young people. May they believe that what this world is telling them is best for them. That what the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life desires for them to do. The direction that this world wants them to go. The things that the world is telling them they need to experience. May they believe, without having to know from experience, that is simply not true. May they trust the Word of God. May they trust it implicitly. May they build their lives upon it. I pray for we who are parents, we who are adults. Help us to be a good example of this. Help us not to seek satisfaction in that which simply cannot satisfy. Help us to love life. Help us to live life. But Father, help us to live it right. To live it within the context of you, of your word, of the reality that everything we have is simply an extension of your goodness to us. May you be honored in our response this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.